Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, I'm Sif Heider, the founder of Array. I'm a wellness entrepreneur and digital creator, and this is my show, The Dream Bigger Podcast. Listen, I love dreaming big, but you know what I love more? Actually having the resources to make those big dreams happen. And hey, dreams can sometimes be private jets, but other times they can look a little something like having the best skin of your damn life or starting a successful business or delving into spirituality. So on this podcast, I chat with experts and thought leaders from different fields about their tips and tricks on doing exactly that. So let's get right into it. Hello, friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Dream Bigger podcast. So the number of conversations I have had with people over DM about how to raise money for their business is unbelievable. So I knew that at some point in this show, yes, I've had entrepreneurs come on and talk about how they've raised money for their brand, but I knew at some point I really wanted to have a venture capitalist on the podcast. And of course, who better than Tina Busaba, who is a dear friend of mine, an incredible investor. She was an angel investor for a really long time, then went on to start her own venture capital fund called Verity. She is absolutely phenomenal, really great eye for emerging brands, a wealth of information. And I think that she will just help you guys understand everything from the eyes of an investor, from how to best pitch to what they look for, to what they call bullshit on. And it really is such an incredible episode. I knew that when I was to bring a VC on the show, the first time I would do it would have to be a woman because, you know, I really do think that in the venture capital slash fundraise world, there is a lack of women leading the way. And it's very, very cool to see Tina have started this fund, which is a big fund and do such a phenomenal job with it. So absolutely love her. This episode will hopefully bring you guys a lot of value. And I'm so excited to dive into it. Before we get into the conversation though, let's talk about this week's hot tip, which is berberine. So if you missed my travel episode, it was like a travel wellness solo that I did a few weeks ago. I talked about the fact that I was packing berberine as one of my supplements because it helps with blood glucose control. So if you missed that, I'll give you guys a little bit of information on berberine, but essentially it is a supplement that helps curb blood sugar spikes that happen typically after a very sugary or starchy meal. And I've been using this supplement for months now. I use it three times a day in three divided doses. I use the one from Thorn. I believe it's 500 milligrams per dose. I learned to dose it out that way from um, a book by Dr. Stephanie Estima called The Betty Body. Anyway, highly recommend berberine. It's become a part of my routine. The research on it is pretty incredible. It's been compared to metformin, which is a drug that's given to people with blood sugar issues, to diabetics. Of course, you know, disclaimer, if you have any medical issues, check with your doctor, do your own research. You know, this is just my opinion, my experience, and just had to share. All right. So this week's review comes to us from Kelly.D97. And she says, I am a newer listener, but I'm already hooked. Sif is the perfect mix of laid back and cool. I love the vibe of the whole show and the wide variety of guests she brings on. 10 out of 10. Kelly, thank you so much for leaving this review. You are so sweet to say this. I am glad you think I'm laid back and cool. I am definitely not at a lot of moments in life, but always appreciated when people say these sorts of compliments. But guys, I love hearing from you. So if you do have a second, please, please leave the show a review. Tell me what you like to hear. 
who your favorite guests are, any dream guests that you want on, any topics you want me to talk about. All you have to do is open the Apple podcast app, scroll down to the bottom where it says rate and review the show. Please leave me a five-star rating if you feel like I've deserved it and review the show. Tell me what you love. And you know, it, it helps me shape how I run the show, the kind of topics I'm talking about, and it helps get the show out to other people who may enjoy it as well. So appreciate your reviews in advance. And now with that, let's welcome Tina to the Dream Bigger podcast. So talk to me about your background. What were you doing ahead of investing? Great question. So many things. However, I have always loved the consumer space. Mm -hmm. And so I think it goes back to my childhood. I grew up in New Jersey and I spent a lot of time at malls. And malls? I, I always, <laughs> I'm serious. I always had such a curiosity around consumer behavior and trends and brands really for as long as I can remember. I mean, I used to, I used to like, like take when my mom would like throw away a mascara. I used to like go in the garbage and take the package and pretend it was mascara. You know, like I, I just always loved products and things like that. And so for me, that consumer interest has always been there. For the first half of my career, which was in New York, I worked in more institutional settings, but always tied to consumer. And so my first job out after college was I worked at Morgan Stanley and, you know, as an investment banking analyst. And after that, I went to work at a hedge fund in New York, and I focused on retail and consumer stocks. As part of that job, most weekends, I would be going to malls doing channel checks because this was a long time ago. Mm -hmm. So if you wanted to know what's going on at Abercrombie and Fitch, you have to go look. And so I spent a ton of time doing that type of research as part of a as part of stock stock research. And so I really had it in my head that I wanted to get closer to the business. So, mm -hmm. you know, go work at what, you know, in my 25-year-old brain was at, at a real company. And so I went to business school with the goal of getting a job at a, at a company where I get closer to the operations. And so I was really fortunate and I had a summer internship that led to a full-time role at L Brands. And so I was doing largely strategy type of work for Victoria's Secret and Bath and Body Works. Wow. And yes, so this was an incredibly powerful experience for me. So when I was there, this was really the heyday of Victoria's Secret. Mm. So like mid to late 2000s. And so- Oh my God. Right. There's no brand, no store in the mall that is more beloved by women than Victoria's Secret. And I learned so much there about- the power of brand and customer loyalty and really building emotional connections with consumers and how you can take what are potentially like functional products and and create a, a lifestyle and emotional connection around them. And that, that really stuck with me. And so I was there, I worked there for a few years and then I went back into equities. So I worked at Sanford Bernstein where I covered the discounters and department stores. So, you know, all I always had this thread of retail and consumer and everything that I did. So that was all in New York. Fast forward out to us my family, we moved to San Francisco almost 10 years ago, 10 years ago. And I want to do something more entrepreneurial. And so I was, you know, I was tired of working at big companies. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, okay, maybe I want to start a consumer company. And so I was working on business plans and different ideas I had. And, and at the same time, started to network with other founders and mm. that led to advising. And then that led to me doing some angel investing. And so it was very, very organic. But, but what I saw was, wow, you have incredibly smart and talented people who could be doing so many different things. And they're starting consumer companies. Like, mm -hmm. Why is that? What's going on? And so as a, like, I'm a really like curious yeah. type of person. And so I dug into that. And so that, that was the beginning of my journey as an investor. And so, you know, I'd say the two takeaways on it are number one, it would, it makes perfect sense. Like I would always end up doing something consumer related yeah. I and, mean, you know, cause that, that thread and interest has always been there. Number two is that it, it's funny to look at these things in hindsight, but when I first started on, with the investing, it was very organic, right? I was like, I'm going to learn as much as possible. I'm going to be as helpful as I possibly can as a small angel investor. Mm -hmm. And that was always my goal. And I have to say like friends of mine who you've like done 
Angel rounds with, they've like all raved about you. Oh, so, I really appreciate it. So like, obviously you've, you've been like a very like involved and helpful partner, which is awesome. Hey guys, it's me, Chriselle Lim, co-founder and CMO of Bumo. As a busy working parent myself, I felt like there was a lack of options for parents and I personally needed more support. So that's what we're doing here on Being Bumo. We're here to make your life easier, a little less stressful, and help you navigate through this complex thing called parenting. So subscribe now to Being Bumo at applepodcast.com slash beingbumo or wherever you listen to podcasts. Oh, gotta go. See you guys soon. And so I guess that leads me to my next question, which is, if someone is going and trying to raise money like an angel round, can you give our listeners kind of an overview of what they should expect, both in terms of like a how to approach angels and like why they should opt for angels versus venture capital and what they can expect from their angels as well? Yeah, definitely. So <laughs> you're going to laugh. But when as I was preparing for this, because mm-hmm. I was really excited, wanted to do a good job. I listened to some of your of your incredible podcasts yeah. that you've done. And you had an individual on who I think is an angel investor in your Arty, company, yeah. who was brilliant. And yeah. I, I loved I loved that one. And I think she said she addressed so many of these things really, really well. I agree with her, which is that as a founder, like there are so many choices that that you're making, which can have really significant long-term implications, right? Who you partner with, who you take on as investors, right? These are like really, really important decisions. And I do think sometimes people rush into these things, you know, and, and I think it's, it's risky. But what I would say is that typically, you know, there isn't like one type of angel investor, but I think that there is more, I observe more and more interest in doing angel type of investings, mm-hmm. you know, in, in my broader network. And I think, and people have different reasons for doing that. You know, sometimes it is because like your guest and your investor where she is passionate about about supporting groups of underrepresented founders and, you know, as, as am I. And so I think that like, there are definitely great angel investors who cast, who have a, a you know, a who are really looking to support and, you know, give back to, to communities of, of founders. And so I think that that's certainly like one, you know, path that, you know, that came up in your in your conversation. I think that the, the point that I would make is that like angel investors have various motivations, yeah. right? And some may be much more financially oriented. Some may be learning. Mm-hmm. Some may want to support a founder because they met them and they think they're amazing. And, you know, and it's, that's really different from when a company, you know, may go on to raise money from an institutional investors, because the, when, you know, if you're a, if you're a venture capital firm, you have limited partners, you know, your investors, and you've agreed to a certain mandate with respect to, you know, how quickly you're going to deploy your fund, how much you're going to write in first checks, what your check size is going to be, what stage you're going to invest in. And so there's always like, it's a lot more like structured in terms of what, what your investment mandate is. And, you know, you have to, you have to stick to that. The other important point is that there's typically with institutional investors, there'll be a time frame over which there would be an expectation of an exit. And mm-hmm. and so it, it's important for, and I think it's important for founders to, you know, know what they're signing up for yeah. when they decide to go down that path. Yeah. A hundred percent. So you obviously now have kind of, are also doing venture capital. Yep. So what attracted you to kind of going down that path? Yeah. So this is such an interesting question because it's such a journey it's been such a journey for me mm-hmm. and i've i've thought about this a lot and for me the decision to launch verity with my business partner matt and to raise outside capital was for me personally was driven by two things one founders were saying to me hey, you know, founders in whose company as a, I was in a small individual investor were saying, hey, you know, you've been one of our best investors. Could you lead our next round? Like, why, are you, why aren't you kind of in the mix of this? And for me, that was this like strong validation of product market fit around the thesis that I'd had that early stage consumer companies can benefit tremendously from investors who bring real consumer experience mm-hmm. and understand brand and understand 
how to think about capital efficiency, how to think about retail and, you know, omnichannel distribution. And, and, and so for me, that really validated the thesis that I'd had. And so it was, it was terrific to be getting that feedback from founders. And, and, and so that was that I'd say like for that motivation, for me, it was so much about like what the, what the market was, you know, the feedback that I was getting from the market. And then the second related point that, that I would make around that was I felt like where I saw seed and early stage consumer companies getting stuck sometimes was not being able to raise enough money in a round to like really give them the runway that they needed to like have a fighting chance. And, and so it felt like I saw really talented founders who I was super excited to back spending like all their time fundraising, oh, just constant. It seemed to worst. never really go away. Right. And, and, and I felt like I felt really bad about that because I felt like, gosh, like these businesses have so much promise. These founders are working their butts off. Like it's, it's just brutal to see this. And so what I realized was, and cause you know, as, as an individual angel, like I can't solve the problem. Like if you need a million dollars, you know what mm-hmm, I mean? Like mm-hmm. it's like multiples of what I would be investing as a small investor. And so I also saw, you know, like these companies, they need like they meaningful checks, right? They need a lead investor. Like yeah. there really needs to be a real round, you know, not this sort of like constant fundraising. And so for me, like I wanted to solve that with the business that, you know, with, with our firm, because I just saw it as such a challenge that founders in this space were experiencing. Yeah, for sure. So I want to dive into two things. Number one is for someone who's completely new to this, maybe is thinking of raising their first round or like a new entrepreneur What's the difference between a seed and a series A and a pre-seed? Because this can be confusing. Yeah, tell me about it. I know. No, we talk about this all the time. Okay, so I think here's what I would say. Generally speaking, I think that, and so not specific to consumer businesses, I would describe a pre-seed fundraise as typically probably less than a million dollars. Not always, but like probably, right? And it's very early. You know, you're, you're ideating. There isn't, there isn't necessarily product market fit. There isn't even necessarily a product, right? There might be pre-launch, pre-revenue. So I would characterize that as a pre-seed. There are definitely exceptions because you'll sometimes see much larger raises pre-launch given the, you know, who's at the table. But like, generally speaking, I would say that's like, it's very early. You know, Mm -hmm. you're really at the very earliest stages of the business. I think a seed round, you know, for me, typically from a size perspective, it's, you know, and again, of course there's flexibility either end, but I'd say it's probably like one to $5 million, right? For maybe four, but you know, in that, in that range, like low single digits. And I think that that's a point where there's product, you know, there's sales, but it is still, it's still quite early, right? And you're building a team, really figuring out what the go-to-market strategy looks like. But there's, you know, there's traction that can be evaluated, whether that is, you know, direct to consumer sales or potentially some early retail distribution, but there is, you know, there's, there's a business there. One can evaluate, does this have product market fit? And then I think that series A in the consumer space, and, 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 you know, I've recognize like if you look at like all the tech fundraisers that are happening, you'll see series A's that are like $25 million. Yeah, they're like so that's a completely different, different ballgame, yeah, I feel. That's a different ballgame. And so I, w- yeah, I like, I want to be clear. We we'll talk about that, but that's a different thing. But I think <laughs> that like, I would say, you know, for me, I think most series A for consumer brands are probably like five to $10 million, which is still a wide range. But mm-hmm. I think that, you know, that that's pretty fair. I think that probably covers like, you know, the 90% of, of series A. And I think at that point it is, you know, the company's probably doing a few to maybe $5 million in sales, you know, generally speaking. And there is, there's strong product market fit, right? There's a real team. There's a developed commercial strategy. There, there probably is like a omni-channel distribution of some sort, not always, Mm -hmm. but, you know, frequently there, you know, different channels. And so, so, those things can blend together for sure. But that's how I would, you know, generally speaking, characterize it. And when someone is going to raise a round, how much runway should they be aiming for? Yes, that's a good question. I think that the certainly the general view on that is probably at least maybe 18 months or so. I hopefully more than a year. Sometimes mm-hmm. it might just be a year, but I'd say certainly at least at least a year. You know, part of what I would say part of what founders have to think about, and this is like tricky, but you really want to think about fundraising against like specific milestones, you know? And so for example, like if let's just say hypothetical business is planning to launch in a, you know, a Walmart or Target in a year, something like that, right? Like 
in their fundraising right now. Like the, the, the ideal situation would be to raise adequate capital to get them through that launch. Mm, mm-hmm. Because then when they go to raise the next round, let's say it's a series A or or a growth, you know, a, a more of a growth round, like then they can really point to like those successful launches because which will have really driven you, hopefully a big step up in the business. And that's going to, I think, make for like a much more successful fundraise, right? Because then they'll be, you know, they'll, presumably would have a really significant increase in valuation. And, you know, again, they just these hit these critical milestones. Of course, things do not always work out as planned. But I think that it, that's probably a healthy way to think about it because, and that's what investors are going to be looking at also, right? Like, what are you executing towards? Mm-hmm. What have you achieved against that? I think it's it's important to, to keep that in mind. Yeah. Also, I think that, or I, I don't think that people realize how time-consuming fundraising is. It is, like, it really takes you away from operating the business. And so when you're going into it, kind of being cognizant of how long you want your funds to last you and kind of the goals you want to hit just makes you a little bit more informed and, you know, it just goes a longer way. Yeah. So you are absolutely right about that. Fundraising is, when companies are in fundraising mode, it is a full-time job. And right, you need to, you really need to have like set up your team so that the day-to-day business issues are being handled, you know, largely internally because it's, you know, really hard to be putting out fires when you're also fundraising. There are two points that I would make about that that are related, but but different. One is that I think like everything, you know, it always takes longer than you think it's going to take or almost always. Oh, and so always. Yeah. I just want to start it well in advance of, of when, okay, if it's like, okay, we have to get a fundraise closed by, you know, X date, then it's like, I don't know, you walk it back three months or so, or, you know, some reasonable amount of time to really like to, to start focusing on it and just expect that it will take time. Because I mean, even when you get the term sheet signed, then you got to do the docs and you got to do, you know, really just, it just takes time, you know, and that's just, and it's, it's just part of the, part of the drill. But the other thing that I would say, and this is advice that I really like to give to founders and, and it's equally important for, for us as we, you know, as we raise money for our business, it is, it's so important to think about relationship building you know, outside of what you might be calling like the fundraising Mm, period. mm -hmm. And so, you know, and this is why for us, like we love to talk to companies really early because they may not be raising or they may be just raising like a little angel round and, and which is, which is great. But from our perspective, it's like, if we then have nine months to get to know you and then you're raising your seed, that is so much less work that we have to do in that period of time to figure out what's going on with your business. Because we already know you. We've already seen you execute. Like our ability to quickly get to like a yes is going to be way higher because we understand what's going on. We have a relationship. And of course, things don't always work out that way. But I think it's like, it's a lot of work, but I think it founders can set themselves up for a successful fundraise if they are, if they're, if they're leveraging relationships that they already have and they've, you know, they're on investors radar. They know who are their top 10 or top 20 like investors and they've already gotten to know them a little bit. Yeah. This is, I think, such a valuable tip because I don't think founders realize like what it's like to raise money and also, you know, how important those relationships really are, because I think that it makes a difference if you've already known someone for a while or have like a warm intro versus like, you know, emailing them cold. And then it's like, after that, if they even respond, then it's like, okay, like time to look through everything. And it's a much longer drawn out process. Right. And also I, I think that, you know, when it comes to raising capital, it's a relationship, right? Right. So that means that founders also have to have conviction that the partners they're bringing in, they're happy with. And if you have some time to get to know them, it works to your advantage. Yes. And so you raise a great point, which is it's a it needs to be a yes. mutual fit, right? And so founders, you want to know, like we said in the beginning, these are such important decisions. You mm-hmm. want to be forming relationships with people, um, you know, who have similar values to, who have similar goals. Like I would say this alignment question is so important. Like, when you say, what does success look like? Are your visions similar, mm-hmm. you know? And are they, is there alignment there? So important. I think that, and, and so you're absolutely right that it, it is equally important from the founder side. On this point around the early relationships, another thing that I would say, you know, having, I mean, I've talked to like thousands of companies over, you know, over the past half dozen years. And for me, like 
when you're just looking at a company at a point in time, it's it's so hard, right? Because you're trying to understand like what happened before, what's happening next, you know, building the relationship. Whereas like, if you have an opportunity to see a founder or founding team like execute, even if it's over like a quarter or two, that's so valuable because they said, okay, here's what we're going to do. And then you talk to them again in six months and they're like, we did that. And we also did this, this, and this. All of a sudden I'm like, wow, I am really listening because these people are crushing it, you know? And so like the, it, it takes work, but like setting up those types of things, it's really, really important in terms of getting people excited and getting them across the finish line. Yeah, you know, this is a conversation that I've had with like a lot of like maybe younger kind of newer entrepreneurs and they're like, oh, like, how important is your network and how important is relationship building? And it is so important, you know, like both from a fundraising standpoint and also getting to know other businesses. And like, this is kind of the stuff that really does speed up your fundraise and makes the whole process a lot less grueling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if someone is looking to raise money and this is their first time, walk us through the process. <laughs> okay. So th this is this is good. This is a good thing to talk about. So this so it, let's just make sure that we have all the like all the facts. So this is a company that has launched. So they have they're yeah. selling a product or some products. They've got a website. Exactly. They've got okay. They've launched. They're like making sales. You know, they have proof of concept, and yeah. now they're going in. They need a little bit of capital to you know get to the next step. Okay, great. And so this I think is pro. Let's say we're talking about you know we talked about before like pre-seed and seed yes. and stuff, and so. I think that if this is falling into more of a pre-seed bucket, I think that most likely those fundraises, they tend to coalesce around, I mean, sometimes individuals, and we, we could put a pin in that and talk about that because of course it's, you know, very few people have networks that include individuals who can invest in highly risky private companies. Like, yeah. right? So that's like, you know, this whole friends and family thing is like super problematic, but, but we can come back to that. But I think that often there are individuals around the table and, and, potentially some, you know, often like there are some pre-seed focused funds that may write, you know, checks 100K, 250K. And then sometimes you do have firms that will write, you know, might might carve out a small pool of capital to write some of those early checks, right? To, you know, to, to start to build build pipeline for for larger checks. So I think that like, I, I think that as, you, as one thinks about at that stage, like what the investor base might look like. But okay, from a practical perspective, I think that like certainly from preparation wise, super important to have like, all the materials that, that an investor might want which like, is tied up, right? So probably there's a deck. Some companies are using like memos now or like doing like a notion presentation, like anything like that. But something that really explains like, what is this business? Who's behind it? What are, what's our goal? What, what's our reason for being? What are we doing? You know, what are the products? Look like just an intro. And then I, I think also, you know, a, a getting a little bit further along, like having their financials sorted out, right? Like both their, their actuals, even if it's just a little bit, whether it's like the QuickBooks or whatever it might be, but really just having like, having something that someone could, could take a scan of to understand like what's going on. And then in consumer businesses, it, it tech of course is very different. In consumer businesses, there's typically some sort of like, you know, forecast, right? And and obviously it's very early, like it's, you know, you're trying to have, build a crystal ball, but I think like some sort of financial model. And and what, what, what that's really getting at is like a lot of investors, they want to get a sense of like, how big do you think this company could be? Like, and what's your pace of growth going to be? Like, are if five years out, do you think, are you trying to build a $100 million business? Which would be, you know, not easy, but like, or you would want to build a $5 million business. It's just, it's more like around, you know, those numbers aren't going to be, aren't going to be right either way. But like having a sense of like, what are we talking about here? Like, what is this potential scale of this business? And then I think also that illustrates like the margin structure, you know, if you're talking about like a product business mm -hmm. yeah. and, you know, having, having all those things together. And then I think that, also getting into these like tactics, I think that the founder will also want to have, you know, a legal right to help them think through, okay, are we raising it on safe or a convertible note? Or are we going to do a little price round? Just like all those, you know, just the, the sort of deal dynamics that okay, are important. I'm going to stop you right yeah. there. What is yeah. a safe convertible oh. note for this? So, is, <laughs> no, 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 totally. And so this is, this is interesting. And I, I will definitely caveat is like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a, what I say, a, a venture lawyer. And so, you know, like there's, you could have someone really go yeah, deep on all course. these things, but effectively safes and convertible notes are instruments that companies will frequently use to raise money either 
very early on when it's too early to put a valuation on the company. So a safer note will generally have like a valuation cap at which the the, equi- the the future equity will convert into preferred when a price round is raised. And sometimes those are used, you know, in between price rounds also. But the idea, like the, the point, uh, you know, when Y Combinator developed the safe, it was to make it quick and easy and inexpensive for companies to quickly close investors mm-hmm. without involving a lot of legal teams and documents and stuff. Just quick, easy form document. You know, you, do- you download it from the Y Combinator website. Now, and, and so that's, so I think that if you're doing a pre-seed, typically that is how I think most companies are raising money, like at that stage. I, I think more commonly you would see like a priced round, maybe like at the seed stage. And what does a price round involved for people who don't know. Yes. So that is when you have agreed with your your lead investor or with your investors on what is the valuation of the company and how much money are you raising, i.e. how much dilution are you taking because that's, you know, that equity is then going to your investors. So like just for example, to keep it super simple, like let's say that you were going to raise $3 million on a $7 $7 million pre-money valuation. So seven plus three, $10 million post. So that means that the investors are buying 30% of the mm-hmm. company, three over 10, right? And so when you do priced round, then there are lawyers involved because you have to do, you know, all the all the official documents and like these things, like, you know, there's like serious seed docs. So it's not, you know, there's, you're certainly not recreating the wheel, right? There's like, these things are somewhat templatized, right? Mm-hmm. But like, that's when there's legal involved, you know, it, it costs money. And, and so it doesn't make sense until you're raising like a more, you know, a more substantial amount, generally speaking. What really stands out to you when someone's pitching to you? This is the this is the best part because, you know, I, I mean, like I love, there's nothing I love more than talking to founders. And I, that is like uh, just the best part of the job for sure. And I, for me, you know, I love as much as I possibly can. I love to have to, to be spending time with, with founders because I feel like it is, you can't really understand a person like until you've talk to them, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, like, in other words, like you can look, you know, you can see like what someone's on their social media or like what their LinkedIn says, you know what I mean? Like, but it's like, I, for me, like I'm so focused on, and I think sensitive to like people's energy, you know, and yes. how they're like, how they just like that passion, you feel that excitement for what they're building. And like, they're, you know, when founders, like they're just so, so single-mindedly focused on, you know, on building their company and and are, you know, just, just so driven by that, like, you know, just in, internal like spark, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's what I would say. Like it is, it's, and I think you, you, you make a great point by like looping us to this because, you know, as great as all your materials are, those are like, going to be check the box things if you can really sell people. You know what I mean? And so like, and so that that's not going to like get it done. Like th- those are important to have, but like that, that, the, you know, the pitch, right? It's so important. So I would say like for founders, it's like practice, 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 right? Like it's, that's, it's so important. And, and, you know, you really want to be able to be conveying like your, you know, the passion for what you're building, like the why also, right? Like why are you, for the founder, like why are you doing this? Like what is, what is driving you? And I think those are such important pieces to, to convey in a, in these, in, in your investor conversations. When a round is like kind of happening, what, like what are the things like aside from just a pitch and like the kind of documentation, like say a business like looks good to you and you like the founders, are there any other things that you look for that kind of helps you sign off and make a decision on yes or no? Yeah. So the way that I think about that is kind of is like two two buckets, like at a high level. So yes, as we discussed, like like when, when we're evaluating a potential investment, you know, certainly the founders or the founding team, you know, at, at early stage are so critical because, you know, you, you are ultimately like investing in people. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And then, but, but, you know, certainly very importantly, I think that what I am always looking for, like when I'm looking at consumer brands is evidence of customer love, right? Like, are there sticky, loyal customers who are, you know, repeat purchasing, recommending this to their friends, you know, maybe 
posting about it, right? And like, so we could talk about like, you know, that can manifest itself in different ways, right? If you're a retail-driven business, that would probably come through more around like velocities, you know? Whereas if it's a, you know, a direct-to-consumer, you know, driven business, then much more around like those repeat purchase rates and those like type of metrics. And and then so certainly, and I think also manifests itself in things like social media metrics, right? And like engagement and, you know, around a brand. And so like, I, I am really interested in all of those like types of things because it, to me, it comes back to like, is that customer love there, right? Are there are there like loyal customers who are buying this, not because they're like getting a discount, you know what I mean? But because they like love the brand, they want to be like aligned with what that stands for. And so that traction I think is super, super important. And I mean, I feel like you know when you see it. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's probably like a gut feeling there yeah. that like you really just believe in it yeah. and and know that there's something special there. Yeah. Do VCs care about who else a founder is raising money for from? Like, do they care about the team that's around the founder, like outside, like from outside capital perspective? Ah, uh, you mean like other investors? Yes, exactly. So that, you know, it's a good question. And I think it probably varies to which different venture firms are care about that. The, I'll tell you the way that like we think about it, which is that, you know, we have like great relationships with, a, you know, a number of, of other firms that invest in where there's overlap in like the types of companies that, you know, we would look at. And, and I'm always excited when we have the opportunity to like co-invest with a, with, you know, with, with a, a firm like that. The way that I think about it is more broadly, like, What's most important from my perspective is that there is alignment around the cap table, like around the investor base, around like, what, what are we building? Like, what does success look like? What are, what is, what are our goals? And like alignment around that is so important because where you can run into trouble and this is, and I always say like, this is about business models. It's not about people. It's about business models, right? But if, just to give you like a hypothetical example, right? Like, if there's a fund that's $100 million and for them, right, as they think about the economics of their fund, if a company sells for $400 million, right, like that's a terrific outcome, you know, and and that can like really, that will really contribute to the returns of that fund. Whereas if there's a fund that's $2 billion, mm-hmm. right, a $400 million exit is like a rounding error, and right? They need $10 billion exit, you know? And and which is fine, like just business models. You know, there's not good, bad, right, mm-hmm. wrong. It's nothing. It's just the business model, right? It's like the math of it. And so where you can run into challenges is if you have investors that are, have such different business models that what one defines as success is not success for another one. Because mm-hmm. then you're never going to be able to satisfy all your investors, right? Because one, one is going to say, for example, because you you hear this all the time, and like again, it's totally business model driven. But you'll hear like a, a large investor, you know, might be saying to a company like, you know, don't sell, don't sell, keep going, go for the multi billion dollar exit, and which again is like a totally legitimate path to follow. But if you're like the smaller fund and you're also in that, you're like, I wish they would just sell. Like, yeah, this is great, you know. And so to me, it's it's alignment of business models where you, you want to have. And again, this doesn't come into play super early on, but I think it kind of a little bit later where you just want to make sure that the people around the table all have like a generally shared view of like what does success look like. That is really smart. And it's actually not something that I would even think of. So I think it's like such a, it's such a valuable piece of advice. Yeah. I mean, it it took me like, there's some things I feel like with any job, you can only learn on the job. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, and this is something that it took me like time to fully appreciate how important that was. Cause like, to give you an example, like I have great relationships with other investors at much, much, much larger firms. I don't think we should be investing together for the most part, right? Because they have a totally different business model. You know what I mean? And they're yeah. just, they're, they need something different. And and so I think that like that piece of it is something that has really like over the past few years has like really crystallized for me as we think about like your question around building the cap table and mm-hmm. co-investors. And so, and, and so I think that's a really important piece of it. The other thing that I would say around like building that investor base is I do think that it is absolutely true that whether it's individuals or, or, you know, firms, like people can bring a lot of value, different value yes. to the table. Yeah. And so I do, I know it's hard and it's a lot of work, but like being able to build an investor base and it might be over a couple of rounds, like not necessarily all at once, but like building a diverse investor base that has like different networks and different areas of experience yes. that you can lean on is very, very valuable. Yeah. I 
could not agree with you more because I think that you need people for different things. And like the kind of wider you go, the more covered you are. And like you always have someone to lean on whenever you have an issue come up, you know? So I think it's like a really, really good piece of advice for founders. The other thing that I want to discuss, Tina, is, you know, I think that a mistake that happens sometimes with newer businesses is that people will go out to raise money, but maybe not know how important it is to target the right investors Mm. based on their thesis. You know what I mean? So how important is it for you as a founder to identify someone's investment thesis without like, for example, if I know that you, hypothetical, only invest in beauty brands and I am... I don't know, a tech brand, like there may not be a fit, you know? Yeah. Okay. So this is a great point. And you're right that, you know, a couple of questions back when you were asking me about preparing for a fundraise, we we should have talked about that. You're absolutely right. I I neglected to mention that research, right? Research and preparation. I'm like a research and preparation person and everything. I I listen to all these (laughs) podcasts, you know, now I'm ready. But, But I think that research and preparation is really important. And that can be both like looking at like crunch base, you know, like, you know, available or free or inexpensive, Mm -hmm. you know, resources, as well as like talking to your network, right? Mm -hmm. And just finding and, and getting a sense of like, who are the types of investors, whether it's, you know, individuals or firms that are investing in companies like mine, you know? So that is a really important piece of it because you don't want to waste your time targeting firms that are just like, where your company is like totally out of scope from what they're doing, right? It's not personal. Again, it's just business model. This is not what they invest in. And so you want to be, there's nothing wrong with occasionally having a conversation like that. Maybe they can point you in the right direction. But like when you're really focused on like executing and getting it done, you want to talk to investors where this, it is like, you know, your company is really in their sweet spot. And so that research piece of it is, is really important. The other thing that I would say is like, and you know, this is also has been like a learning for me and, and something I try to do when, when we talk to founders is when we, you know, give our intro and tell them about Verity and what we're focused on, I really always am, you know, want to be really like uh, crisp on, you know, here are categories that we're interested in. Here are, here's what we're looking for from a revenue perspective. Here's the type of typical check size that we would write. Because I think sometimes founders understandably like feel uncomfortable asking those questions. Like, you know, just say like, what's your typical check size? But I actually think that that's a completely legitimate question that founders should, you know, ask investors. And so, and it's, it feels uncomfortable sometimes, but it shouldn't because this is just like getting the facts. You know, you just want, you want to know because if, if you're trying to raise $10 million and you're talking to a firm and they say, you know, our average check size is $250,000, nothing wrong with that. But you just want to know that that's just not really going to make a big dent in the particular fundraise that you're doing, right? Or conversely, if you're trying to raise a pre-seed round and a, and a firm says, we don't write a check under $10 million, not going to happen, Yeah, you know? And so it, it, it's important to like, just get get the facts, right? Get the information. And so I've I've definitely seen that some founders are really direct about that. And I think that I encourage it. I do think that again, like it's that two-way street, right? right. And I think exactly. like it's that preparation and exactly. knowing like, you know, for example, when people are younger, right? They're right out of college. They're scared to go in for these job interviews and actually like ask the right That's questions. Right. It's like the same That's thing, right. right? That like, yep. yeah, you need investment, but at the same time, like at the end of the day, it's a relationship and there's upside for both parties. And it's really important that you know exactly what you're getting into and make sure that they're the right fit right from the get-go. Otherwise, like why waste time, you know? Exactly, exactly. So I want to chat a little bit about women in venture, the allocation of funds. First and foremost, I mean, this has pretty much been like a boys club for a very, very long time. How did you even know you were going to break out in this space? And like, how's that journey been for you? Because I mean, it's women are underrepresented. Oh, painfully so. You know, it's interesting to look at in hindsight, but I think that in the first part of my career, the settings that I worked in were, you know, relatively speaking, more open and more meritocratic because they're more corporate, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I think like you just have more like policies and you have, you know, and, and again, I mean, there's still a lot of, imp- you know, room for improvement, but they weren't, you know, it wasn't like this sort of like clubby networked uh, aspect that, right? Like, I think that some people can have that like experience in mm-hmm. the in the VC world. And so I, I, I think that it's a, a huge challenge. For me, 
you know, I go back to like the, these early conversations that I had with founders as a personal investor, I think like 90 plus percent of the companies I invested in were female founded or diverse founded companies. Right. But what's so interesting to me is like, I didn't actually, like, I didn't actually set out with that as a goal. What I was looking for was incredibly talented founders who knew their customer better than anyone. And, and to me, it's like so obvious, like it doesn't make any sense to have people who are not like part of a particular customer group to be building products for them. And so like, it was just, it was just such a, it was like a disconnect that was difficult for me to really understand. Like, even like, why is this? Yeah. And, and so for me, I felt like in many ways, I think that it is a, when I think about like the investment opportunities for us, like I actually feel like there's, we have a competitive advantage in the fact that we are really like completely just very focused on inclusivity, you know? And, and in other words, like we have a track record, you know, me personally of like investing in founders, you know, very few of them who really fit like the the pattern of Mm -hmm. like a, you know, tech, venture or venture backed, you know, founder. And, and so I, I just continue to feel like it is, there's just so much opportunity, you know, and, and it's hard. And obviously like, you know, there needs to be much more collective effort in that way, but I am just time and time again, just floored by the talent of the founders that I have, you know, had the had the great fortune of being able to invest in and work with. And, and so I just feel like, you know, this certainly will continue to be a focus of ours with, with Verity. And I think that it is just like, gosh, like such an, such an undervalued asset. Oh my God. Yeah. Because especially in consumer, I feel like women are the biggest consumers ever, right? Like we're constantly touching, feeling product and like, we are your consumers. So like, of course, I feel like women are also creating incredible brands. And, you know, every time I hear the stat about like how under kind of allocated funds are to female-led deals, it's like shocking it's to shocking. me. It's totally shocking. I mean, I just, again, I feel like it's just, it's massive missed opportunity, massive missed opportunity, right? And yes, especially in consumer. Like one of the things that I think has changed a lot in the consumer space is, you know, if maybe even 10 years ago, like the typical consumer didn't really know who was like behind the products that they were buying. And they didn't, it's not even like whether they cared or didn't care, but it just wasn't, it wasn't a consideration, right? You're right. And I think what happened, particularly driven by social media, Mm -hmm. I think is, is like now, and this maybe it's over the past half dozen years, you know, but where it's like these founder led companies like yours, that is where the future is, right? Like that. And that's what consumers want, you know? And so to me, like, what that means is that there is tremendous opportunity from the investor perspective to be working with founder-led businesses. And like, of course, those founders are are going to not, they're not going to fit often like that. Again, that typical sort of VC mold, which is like exactly the point. Yeah. And I just think that there is this big shift amongst like even just consumers where people want to buy from people and people want brands to be humanized, Yes, you know, and founder-led businesses serve exactly that kind of desire that customers have, you know, and it also adds this layer of like trustworthiness almost, you know, because it it, like adds, and I think that's what consumers are looking for. They're looking for transparency. They want to know the story. And like, I, I really do think that women have been showing up and doing that. Like this whole yes. social media movement, I would argue has been led by women. Oh, you know? completely. Oh, completely. Yes. Now here's an, another interesting piece of that. And this is you know, my business partner and I were just talking about this today. So, okay. I completely agree with you that we are in this like era of founder-led businesses and that consumers, they care so much about, mm-hmm. about who, who the founders are and what they stand for and, you know, what are the values of community that they're building. And this is like, it is, it is a huge opportunity. Of course, it also brings tremendous challenges and it puts 
an enormous amount of pressure on founders, yes. right? To like not make any mistakes. Cause we all know that like, like there are really bad mistakes and that's a different thing, but like little mistakes, everyone makes small mistakes, right? And it's really hard to be like spending your day, like worried about even making a really small mistake. That's just really hard. Cause it's human to make small mistakes, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. And the other thing that I would say, and this is like, this is actually like a, almost like a, an organizational observation that we've been having, which is that given the demands on like founder-led businesses and like the consumer's expectation and like how often, how they want the founder to like show up and like, right. It feels to me like it's practically impossible to do that job and also simultaneously to be, you know, what would you say? Like doing all of the responsibilities of like the day-to-day running of the business. And so like we've seen, you know, like like you, but like successful situations where there is for, you know, for this type of business, like a really strong, whether it's a co-founder or like a number two, but like who can take a lot of the like just the blocking and tackling of day to day on because it's just, there's not enough hours in the day for the founder to be doing all these like forward phasing activities and also to be doing all of that. Yeah, that is, that's such a good tip, Tina. Okay, so before we end the show, I love to do a rapid fire round. So there's three questions. Love it. The first is, what is one book you think our listeners should read? I just read a terrific book that I would highly recommend called The Lincoln Highway, which is by the author of A Gentleman in Moscow, which is just fantastic. And A Gentleman in Moscow is great also. I love that. And what's the book about? (laughs) Oh, it's so good. (laughs) It's an adventure. It's an adventure. It's an adventure about some boys, some teenage boys, a younger boy, and an adventure that they have as they go on on a journey. Okay. And yeah, but it's really complex characters, right? Okay. Really gets you thinking about the characters. And I think that's what I really like. I'm just like getting like, how how are people wired, right? Like, I, I love that stuff. Okay, I have to read that book. Oh, so what good. is the best business decision you've made? When I initially reached the conclusion that I would, that I wanted to scale up the investing that I was doing as an individual and, you know, raise outside capital, I had initially started to go it alone. And through an incredibly fortunate coincidence or, you know, introduction was connected to my now business partner and we have a terrific partnership. And I, I would certainly say that it is, I'm so, so happy that, you know, that I, we made the decision, decision to partner together. Cause I think it's definitely a situation of like one plus one is way bigger than two. Oh yeah. Yeah. You guys are very complimentary. It's a very <laughs> strong partnership. I must say. Last question. What is a habit that's a non-negotiable for you? I love doing the Peloton. Really? Oh, I love it. I didn't use to be like, I really need to like have regularly have like a good sweat. I love that. Okay, maybe I need a Peloton <laughs> down the line. Like people who are like really into it. Yeah, it's, it's gosh, it's, so, it's convenient. It's easy. You get it done. Like it's fun. I, I love it. But for me, it's like any type of like, I just love, I love doing like a hard exercise. You're really sweat. You're like really worn out after. Like, I love that. Love it. Tell everyone where they can find you. Okay. You can find me at Tina at VerityVenturePartners.com. That's probably the easiest and way. And any Instagrammer website for Verity as so, well. So yes, VerityVenturePartners.com, our LinkedIn also. You know, we're working on our Instagram. There's something I wanted to get your advice on. <laughs> yeah, we're getting there. We're getting there. Exactly. Exactly. It's a, it, you, you have to, you know, think about, be strategic about that for a business like ours. But yes, it is. It is important. But yes. Yeah, so website, LinkedIn is definitely the best way to reach us. Amazing. Thank you, Tina. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. If you loved the episode and feel like it brought you value, don't forget to rate the show and leave a review. It takes five seconds and really helps the show grow so I can keep bringing on awesome guests. If you want to follow me behind the scenes, you can find me on Instagram at Sif And don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss a thing. I drop new episodes every Tuesday, so come hang with me and shoot the shit with some really smart people, learn and unlearn, and have a lot of fun. See you next week.